What's up, gamers? Welcome to Battle Mallet Podcast, Episode 9, The End is Near-ish. This is a podcast delving into the minds of four busy gamers, their annual journey to the NOPA Open Convention, uh, the games they love, and balancing life with those games. I'm Jared. I'm Trace. I'm Danny. And I'm Jason. And uh, in this episode, uh, we've got a few sections to get through. We're going to jump into the Middle Earth. So we'll talk to Danny about his uh, recent uh, Middle Earth strategy battle game. Gosh, that's a mouthful. Um, We'll talk about a little bit about our 40K campaign. uh, Talk to you guys about Blackstone Fortress. We've got a, a short crack glass segment about the warhammer world grand clash uh and then we'll wrap up the show but before we dive into the meat what's everybody been up to lately trace uh i've been painting my little sweet behind off Woohoo! um play with a bunch of the contrast paints i think we talked about that before um but i've really been trying to in earnest finish up these beastmen so i have a bunch of minotaurs on my paint table right now they're close to being done not done yet close to being done um finished up my imperial knight for mine and jared's 40k doubles narrative list yes i'm taking a knight to a narrative list if you had been there you would understand um hey, but, at least yours painted and has the cor- correct weapons on it so i'm good correct I'm fine with it. yeah yeah um i am less pressured by those as i am the beastmen um because jared and i just straight up will like, get asked to take models off the table if we don't have our models painted for that no the edge of sigmar doubles so yeah um a little more pressure there but i uh, really enjoyed that um uh, and that's really all i've been working on uh i need to start working on our display board i've got it primed and ready um for our for our nova Age of Sigmar double stuff. Um, but yeah, that's about it for me. Just lots of beastmen, lots of goats and bulls and mean-looking doom bulls. Nice. So it's like you're back in high school. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, so for me, I uh, finally got all of my painting stuff unpacked and uh, actually Yay. put some paint on the Yotharis Guardians. Um, I have for the time being, abandoned um, my previous plan. Um, I think I did a proof of concept model about having some kind of inner glow, purple highlighted up to black, um, which I thought was going to look cool, but I think it's going to take more time than I have since we're seven weeks out from Nova. Um, And I have, like, I don't know. How many points is the Bloodthirster that you're going to paint, Trace? Uh, He's 280. Okay, so I have, paint. so I have seven hundred and twenty points of blades of corn to paint. Yep, in the next seven weeks. Yep. So, uh, and a blood throne, skull throne, altar of thrones, altar of corn, corn throne, <laughs> skull altar, blood. It's, it's Grab, don't forget the blood. Don't it's the skull the altar. Skull altar. There it is. But yeah, I got I got that in there. That, but those now two that contrast paints exist, this I know a very easy thing for you to do. Yeah, so I, uh, speaking of contrast paints, that's what I use to do most of my Yotharis Guardians, and I use the Flesh Terror's Red, and I really like the way that it turned out. It gives a nice, like, deep blood red, similar to the Corn Red, um, you know, classic paint. So um, I think, you know, it's going to come in handy 
um, as I'm painting the skull altar and some of the banners and things for the blades of corn. So uh, looking forward to actually getting all of that painted. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I've got done because it's been a lot of cam bolts and little wooden dowels and <laughs> lots of furniture assembling and <laughs> hobby cheating on ikea furniture yeah there yeah that's go. yeah that's what it's been but i think we're done yeah i good i'm glad you're all moved in and there's a chair for me to sit on now when i come over yeah sorry hardwood floor is not comfortable oh yes so i actually have had some hobby progress this time i've uh started to really put my nose to the grindstone on what am I going to take to Underworlds? Is it going to be Eyes of the Nine or is it going to be God's Horn Hunt? Um, you know, I, I'm i 95% certain it's still going to be God's Horn Hunt, although I've been playing Eyes a lot lately. Um, definitely got some, I got some games in over the last few weeks and Eyes are great and I love them, but I don't think they can be as consistent as I want them to be. And I finally got around to uh, putting a deck together for God's Horn Hunt with all the new cards. Um, and I still really enjoy them. Like, I don't think, I know I'm not, I'm not going to play the most optimized deck when it comes to God's Horn Hunt, but I just have fun with them. So going to definitely uh, take them or play more with them in the coming weeks. Uh, got the campaign game, which we'll talk about a little bit later in with Trace. Uh, one thing I will say uh, it was nice to get a narrative game for uh, 40k in, but wow, 40k, I missed you. It's been a long time. I was really, really rusty, really rusty. Um, but at the same time, it made me appreciate some of the other games we've been playing just in different game mechanics. Uh, and then I guess the big shocker is I painted. What? Yeah, you did. Look at you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody really inspired me, uh, you know, up on our Twitter our Instagram and Facebook, you guys have been throwing up a lot of painting pictures. Uh, I did go out and invest in contrast paint, as we've talked about in the last episode. So I, I figured instead of just letting those pots sit there and, and dry up, uh, let's um, let's do something with them. So I took my fire slayers, which were kind of half painted. Um, and that's kind of like the, the point where I'll take this conversation is they were primed. They're zenith, zen, zenithal highlighted heavily because the way i used to paint before was i went i liked black primer so there was a lot more black on these than probably most people would do with the xenothal highlight um but instead of repriming them i'm just like you want to know what? i'm just gonna go for it and just get them on a model to see how they interact and i will tell you that they don't like black primer <laughs> so <laughs> they don't um you know the the models look good i mean you can see them on all the things i just mentioned uh, they still look good, but the skin tones, which I think the the contrast paint and skin tones, flesh tones, is kind of where its wheelhouse is going to be. They do a fantastic job of that. It's my it's the undercoat that sucks on my models. Uh, it was just too dark in some areas, so you get this really, um, really contrast um, blend down through the model, and it just like a skin tone probably wouldn't do that the reason that it kind of pulls it off is because they are fire slavers so they always have that really dark burnt feel to them at, at times um but other than that like contrast has a lot of applications and what i think it hits a home run in is 
if you have a consistent undercoat like the GW way where you're using one of their primers with paints, it really does paint a model like the traditional three color method. It paints it better. Now, a lot of people would argue that a new painter will, you know, the, the colors will bleed over. And that's the only thing that I don't like about it is if you make a mistake, it actually is not easy to cover it up and start again because you have to lay down that base color and then it's kind of hard to match it with the other areas of the model um just the way that that paint works but that model like you know i threw the, an orange on the beard and i was like wow this looks for base coat this looks really really good it goes on super easy because it's so so thin um so i really really like them um, you know, I also did some tests with some of the other colors on a, just, I have a prime slaughter, a prime slaughter priest in gray. So like the, you know, some of the skin tones, I am missing the dark oath flesh, which is the last one that I have to find. It's I guess the most popular one cause it's out everywhere. Uh, but fire slayer flesh and Gilliman flesh kind of look the same. It's really Gilliman is, I would say like one coat and fire slayer is like two coats and it's kind of the same tone. Um, but I did some other tests with like blue. So like. The I'm gonna call it crimson fist blue. I forget exactly what Leviathan the blue. Leviathan blue is a perfect match for my crimson fists. The problem I have with it is, is like, so you put it on and you're like, this is it. Just looks like blue. There's not a lot of contrast. You let it dry overnight, you can see that there's definitely subtle transitions from light to dark to the top to the bottom of the model. The thing of it is, is I think that you can achieve that type of base coat with an airbrush just as quickly. Um, that's why I'm saying the flesh tones, the blue, the blue I used on the, the fire slavers, the real vibrant blue, those things are like money wheelhouse. Uh, and then, you know, the one model I did finish, um, at this point took me, I'd say like two and a half hours. And that's from the model was just primed. So from start to finish about two and a half hours, which is, fast for me but the base coats went on in about an hour and then i did all my little highlighting up so i spent extra time highlighting up the beard and i spent extra time highlighting up the the weapons which no one will notice on the weapons but it's just what i do um and it drastically sped up that process so i like contrast paints i'm excited for war cry to come out because i'm gonna i'm gonna paint those guys <clears throat> this method get a lot of different variations of skin tone. Um, it's really, it's really cool. And I, you know, I appreciate the team here by posting the pictures and, and prodding me. And, and I, I actually enjoyed myself this weekend for a few hours when the kids wow. were asleep. Wow. That's exciting. <laughs> so, um, but with that, you know, the only other thing I'll say is balancing life and, and games Went to go play games on, on Friday, and I get to the game store, and I get the call. You have to come home. Your daughter's sick. So, folks out there in the interwebs, you know, balancing life and games, it's a struggle. And I failed this week. So, sorry for all of these that showed up on Friday to play Underworlds, and I had to split dodge, run home quick. Emma got sick, and actually, it wasn't Friday. I'm sorry. It was Saturday. Look at that. Days are blending together so quickly, but it was Saturday, and yeah, fun times. I'm sure Danny doesn't have a story like that, does he? 
Uh, yeah, not without kids. It's just my own health that uh, <laughs> prevents me from gaming these days. There you go. But yeah, yeah this week I had uh, I had the week off from work because I'm a lucky duck, and so I tried to dedicate as much time as I could to painting, and I actually finished up my Men of Minas Tirith, which I'm Woo! really psyched about. I honestly think that is the first ever completely painted army I have ever done. Oh. In record time for you, and I do have to say they look really nice, my friend. They look really great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really enjoy painting them. It was kind of... Uh, I tried to really just push myself. I'm kind of the the painter that will get lost in the weeds a bit and try to perfect every little imperfection. And with these, I was just trying to trying to just keep pushing forward and try not to, to overwork things and just let it run. And so I'm, I'm really pleased with it. They look sharp together and uh, got to see them on the battlefield this week, which was a nice, nice treat. And uh, yeah, that was kind of something I was really excited about. And that was my, my main hobby progress this week. That's, that's awesome. awesome, man. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, I feel like that's a, a, that's a good time to transition to the next segment which will be you talking to us about your game. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, yeah, let's, uh, we'll dive in, take a break, and hear about the Middle Earth Strategy Battle game. Gosh, say that Nailed seven it. times fast. Welcome back. In this segment, we're going to talk about Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game. And I'm pretty excited to to talk to Danny about that. You know, he has painted his entire army set, ready to go, and you got it on the table, didn't you, buddy? Yeah, one one outing for the men of Gondor. Yeah, is that that's your first game of of this system? Yeah, never never played it before. Got my first game in on, I think it was last Monday, maybe or Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. one of those days. Yeah, they all blur together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so the how many get, how, the faster they go yeah how many points did you feel like was it the whole nova force or just a section uh so i played 600 points um which would be my um singles army uh, all by itself uh so i've built one half of a doubles army which is 500 points and one half of a of a singles army that is 600 and i got to play the 600 list okay just for like scale purposes for people that are not familiar with the game system like how does that compare to like a 40k like how many models uh it can vary um but for this particular game it ended up i had 30 about 35 models on the table at 600 points uh so uh you can sink a ton of points into heroes for instance like if you wanted to run aragorn he costs like 250 points or something like that. And so in a 600 point list, that's going to eat up a ton of your space. Um, but I tried to run pretty infantry heavy. Um, and so I had, had 35 miniatures on the board, which is important uh, because as I found out during that game, a big, big, big important part of this game is your, your break point. And uh, basically your army will just start falling apart uh, once you've lost half of your miniatures. And so the more models you have on the table, the less likely you are to necessarily hit that break point. Oh, like old school, old school undead in fantasy. That's kind of how they worked. Oh, yeah. How did that, that go? Was, 
It was a similar, like, <clears throat> if you lost your general, like, your army would just start to crumble. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's kind of how this was. That's how, how the game ended for us, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically, the whole mission was... The game was really tight throughout the whole game. Uh, it was just classic kill points, so it wasn't anything crazy or fancy to write home about. Uh, but my opponent and I stayed basically within three to four models uh, the entire game, and we broke... We both broke in the same turn, but uh, the way the game is built, the different you have good factions and evil factions. So you're obvious, you know, Gondor, Rohan, Fellowship, those are all good. Isengard, Mordor, Harad, all that, that's bad. Uh, and the game has these kind of built-in rules that are in a vacuum, not particularly balanced, but in the context of the game kind of create an interesting give and take balance uh and so all of the evil armies have really low courage and so once you break them they tend to fail courage tests and when they fail courage tests you just pull the miniature off of the table and so we broke in the same turn and in that turn all but two of my opponent's miniatures disappeared off the tabletop because they failed their courage tests oh wow wow so the mission was like the mission was just beat face. Like, what type of army did you go against, and what was the mission? So the mission was yeah, more or less beat face. But there was different things. So like, if you killed a leader, it was worth more points. If you killed a banner bearer, that was worth more points. Uh, and then if you destroyed, so like the way the game is structured is uh, similar to how Forty K has uh, detachments, uh, where you have you know your your fast attack choice and your troops choice. 40k is kind of built around like almost mini detachments where you have a leader and a unit of models that go with it. And those you can combine those models however you want. So if you really wanted to, you know, you could have a leader with a guy with a bow and arrow, with a guy on a horse, with a guy with a sword, with a guy with an axe. And so it can be all over the place. Um, and so those little war bands were each, if you destroyed one of those, or those were each worth a point. If you destroyed a leader, it was worth three points. And if you destroyed a banner, uh, that was worth two points. And I played against a really great mixed up army that was Mordor stuff. Um, but I, since I'd never played the game before, uh, my buddy Jimmy, the guy who played against, he brought a really great mixture of stuff so that I got to play against a troll, which was a monstrous creature basically that causes all sorts of mayhem got to play against a ring wraith which had magic so i got to see how the magic works in the game um and then you know a bunch of little gribbly orcs and and uh some small leaders and, and then a, a cavalry unit as well so i could see how cavalry units interact in the game cool that's that's a lot of a lot of units or different types of units that's awesome that they brought there so you could see how everything kind of worked for the rules so yeah. what out of all that, that's a lot of stuff. What was your favorite part of the whole experience? Uh, I really liked, it was a combination of two things. Uh, I really liked the flavor of the rules in the game. So for instance, that thing that where evil armies have a lower courage, so they break faster. It feels very thematic and it fits very well. Um, 
but then there's like to give you an, an idea of how an evil rule kind of can give them an advantage is uh, good good guys can never shoot uh, over top of their own players. So if you have a group of bow and arrows, um, and then there's space between them and guys with swords, they won't fire because they wouldn't want to take the chance at hurting any of their buddies. Whereas a bad guy army can just shoot into a close combat if they wanted to. Uh, and wow. so you get these kind of fun moments where it really kind of feels like the flavor of the army exists in a, in a unique way and in a way that is not perfectly balanced, but kind of creates a meta balance. Um, and then I also just enjoyed the pacing of the game because uh, the turns are kind of shared between the players. So instead of one player moving all their miniatures, then shooting with all their miniatures, and then charging with all their miniatures, and then doing close combat with all their miniatures, and then doing courage tests with all their miniatures, and then it going to their opponent, uh, you kind of take turns going back and forth. And so, uh, for instance, player A moves all their miniatures, and then player B moves all their miniatures. And instead of having a whole charge phase, where you move the miniatures in the move phase is determines whether you charged or not. So if you move into base base contact, that's a charge. Good job. Don't have to roll extra dice. You're in. Uh, then opponent A would get to shoot with all their shooting units, followed by opponent B. And then the combats are paired off, and it's kind of similar to 40K in the sense of your both sides do combat every turn. Um, but it's on a model versus model basis of universe unit. So you actually pair them off and you say, all right, this guy with a sword and shield is fighting these two guys with spears. That's one little combat, even if they're all part of the same warband. Wow. It just felt nice because you never were really sitting still doing nothing for a large period of time. It felt snappy and, and pacey, and it kept you engaged. It's really cool. I mean, it's, it's a true skirmish game, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely... It, it's kind of odd because I kind of going into it with 40k being the main tabletop game that I played the idea of a game going you know four five six seven eight nine ten turns uh seems really kind of crazy because in 40k it's like four five six if you get to seven that's kind of a long 40k game uh but you're really sharing the turns it's not you know two halves of turns did we lose them or did we lose me I think we lost you. Cause I, I I I heard nothing from my movie. You lost me. I think we lost you, Danny, because I, I you got cut off in the middle. Yeah. Fun. It's all right. I heard the, the warpscape. Yeah, warpscape continues <laughs> here. Um. Well, that's really cool, and you know, I'm I'm glad that you got to to get a game in. You have another one planned on the horizon. Uh, not yet. Uh, I'm going to be out of the country next week and, uh, I think Jimmy's going to be out of town for a little bit. So we're going to kind of try to scramble towards the end of the month to get a bunch of games in, but there's nothing really on the schedule now, but we almost played the very next day to be honest with you. Um, but something came up at the last minute. I, I'm looking forward to it. I had a great time and it was, uh, really fun to get the whole army on the table. And I will say a weird thing that was enjoyable was, uh, having small miniatures on the army like i don't know it, it maybe this is an odd thing but it felt kind of pleasing to have these little tiny guys and then these big trolls and 
when you compare that to, you know, a lot of the way that the GW miniatures are going, these big chunky Stormcasts, these big chunky Space Marines, these big chunky Ogrins, and like these big, huge models that are the size of old school dreadnoughts. Like it, it was just kind of cool to go back to the roots and have these little baby, little actual scale miniatures. Very nice. And I think, I think the question that, that we can close on is for our listeners that don't know, Danny is a huge Lord of the Rings, not like as in has tattoos on his body dedicated to, <laughs> to the universe. So do. does the game meet your expectations for immersing you in that, in that um, realm? For a first time, yes. That's that I was wildly overwhelmed with all sorts of rules and everything. But it definitely, all the characters have flavor. Uh, they all kind of feel, especially if you're into the movie part of Lord of the Rings, which is obviously what most of this is based off of. <clears throat> you're, if you're into the movies, you'll feel in that world because uh, the miniatures are based off the movies and the rules are based off of things that happen in the movies. And they've done this kind of cool thing where like, you have negative impacts that create positive impacts and it definitely feels like Lord of the Rings and it, it feels like the, the way that might and fate and all that works where you get to kind of say, Hey, this character should be surviving. So I'm just going to use their fate points to roll the dice or to, to increase their, their save roll. And, and look at that. They, they survived this crushing blow from a troll that would have killed a normal guy. Uh, and so you get this kind of cool hero moments and, and yeah, definitely it, it, it was awesome. Good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I look forward to for you to get more games in, and I'm ready to buy in, man. I know you want to play a few more games and and get through Nova, but if this is a game that that strikes your fancy, I'll you know me, I'll jump in and buy some models. <laughs> so you don't need a hard push. <laughs> no. Well, thanks for sharing, and we'll be back in a few seconds with the next segment. Welcome back. So, guys, we finally did it. We finally started our 40K campaign, um, which I am super excited about. Um, we played uh, last Tuesday our first game, um, and <clears throat> it was a lot. It was really fun, and Jared's done a really great job of. Uh, getting this thing prepped for us and you know he's asked us for all for input um, <clears throat> about about what kind of list we want to do what kind of story we want to make what we want our story to be revolved around and stuff like that so Jared I know that you wrote some backstory about this and you sent it to us beforehand and it was just awesome why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what what your thoughts were yeah so you know, I, I wanted it to be immersive and I wanted it to be fleshed out um, because, I, you know, I wanted us, I mean, basically I wanted us to have a real driving excuse to play 40K games beyond just like, hey, let's get together and play. Um, so I actually did a little bit of research, you know, pulled out my Tyranid Codex um, because as we've talked before, you know, I want to make sure, number one, I'm the winner, right? So as playing the, the Tyranid <laughs> faction, you know, I've designed a system that is going to fall to the Tyranid or will it? we'll see i'm willing to be flexible on that but um kind of the driving force behind the campaign is the invasion of a tiered fleet um, so i did some research looked up some dates and kind of cobbled together a timeline similar to what you would see in a codex so you know gave some dates 
Um, the idea is that a splinter of the Tyranid Highfleet Kraken made its way into the Kellar system, which is where our campaign is set. The name of the campaign is Kellar's Fall. Um, by the way, so I designed some planets and then I gave myself an easy out by having an initial evasion come in and it essentially wiped out all but one of the planets. So in the initial invasion, um, the, tier, uh, the Tyranid were uh, held off from wiping out the last planet by uh, the second company, the Ultramarines, and the first and third Ooh. companies of the Crimson Fists. So, um, so the last planet was spared, um, and the Tyranid High Fleet kind of broke off. So it was going to cost the High Fleet too much in resources to be able to get to the planet, so they just kind of split out. Um, so after that, the High Fleet, now dubbed High Fleet Kalari, begins winding its way towards Holy Terra. Like, it's clear, it's evident that that's the path that it's taking. Um, and that Oh, no. I know, right? <laughs> but thankfully, I guess, finger quotes, thankfully, the Cicatrix Maledictum rent the galaxy in two. You're welcome, um, Imperium. That's right. <laughs> Cutting off the High Fleet's path towards Holy Terra. So, um, after that, the High Fleet kind of looks like it's meandering. Um you know, over the course of the next century or so. Um, and then after the end of the uh, Indomitus Crusade, it becomes apparent that the High Fleet is actually making its way back towards the Kellar system. Uh, and that's where the campaign starts. So um, the Tyranid have begun to make landfall um, because uh, the Ultramarines have not been able to secure the system in the same way because of the Indomitus Crusade and dealing with all of the chaos threats that are now appearing galaxy-wide. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as a part of that uh, there is a warband of uh, uh, a small warband um, splinter I guess out of the uh, Black Legion being led by a master of possession mm -hmm. uh, it's being run uh, by Trace yep um, and one of the things that I really appreciate about Jared kind of helping to organize this is that he kind of reached out to all of us and talked to us about <clears throat> what we would find interesting and one of the things that i've been wanting to do since the 2018 chapter proof came out was do some of the custom character stuff because i just thought that that was just neat to have a character that doesn't have any pre-written history that you get to kind of drive um and so i kind of picked one of the um one of the newer models that just came out, which is the Master of Possession, to be kind of my main character. It's not the traditional Chaos Lord or Demon Prince or whatever to be my main character, and his name is Nazanath the Twisted. And I thought that was just a fitting name for him because he's, um, for those who don't really, who haven't really explored the the um, the two, the 2018 chapter approved character stuff, um, you can pick four traits from this different these different um, templates, I guess, that have different things that you can do, different abilities that you would normally see on like a special character or something like that. <clears throat> but you pick four of these, and so I tried to pick some that were fitting for a Master of Possession. So I gave him an extra spell and an extra way to cast that spell and um, made him a little tougher because he's a four-wing character to begin with to kind of represent him being a little bit more in tune with the the demonic energies or whatever. Um, but he is leading a, a group of 
Black Legion into the system because he is under the impression that some very powerful chaos artifacts are on the, in the Kelar system. So that's kind of where that goes. But Gosh, it'd be terrible if he were wrong. It would be terrible, but you know what? It's all right. <laughs> Anytime you just get to go and despoil, we're happy. Yeah, um, there, there you go. So, but I'm I'm super excited about that stuff. Um, and I I think that that's probably been the most intriguing thing for me is just Jared just being like, hey, what do you find interesting? And I know that Jason has a different kind of spin on that stuff. Jason, what do you think? What what did you find interesting about so far that we've done in the campaign? Yeah, I mean, I just want to echo the story. So the story, the story hooked me. Like, Jared's done a really, really nice job of kind of setting it. There's some some spoilers like throughout, but we really don't know enough um, to to know all those spoilers. So it kind of has me intrigued to play and find out those things. And and for me, you know, what I'm looking for is just a story like I want to be part of that the greater scheme of things I don't really want to make decisions I kind of want the ultramarines just to boss us around like they always do and I just want to go and fight where I where I'm needed and more importantly by having the the, the campaign for me Jared can design a mission where you know as a space marine I would send X type of warriors to this type of mission or to this type of battlefield and that's what I liked was was um, designing a list with parameters. So, like, you know, before the game, he was like, don't bring any engines. Like, you're setting up an ambush, lots of infantry. So, you know, I designed my list around that and and fed into the story. So it was very refreshing to get back to narrative play. Mm-hmm. And that was something else that I appreciated, too. Before we had our game, Jared said kind of something similar to me. He was like, you want to be quiet, you want to be fast. Like, you're trying to get to get past something i was like okay so that's what i did i brought bikes and warp talons and a demon prince that had wings and stuff just to try and like get to have some speed so i thought that was a very intriguing part of what jared's kind of done so far as our quote-unquote game master for this for this campaign um danny i know you haven't played yet but what what thoughts do you have about what you've seen so far and what you've talked with Jared about. Well, I'm excited about it. Um, you know, me, I've been trying to advocate for a while for kind of, uh, what I have kind of said a few times is true narrative 40 K play, um, and true campaigning. Uh, I think a lot of times what GW pitches as a campaign is basically just a normal match play of 40 K that, determines what your next match play game of 40k is there's never a real concrete story there's no new kind of objectives or plot twists or in-game mechanics that make it feel narrative it just is mm-hmm. another game of 40k right and so that was something that i talked to jared about and so i'm excited to see his his thoughts on, on and how he implements that uh because i think that is something that personally uh my 40king desperately needs is uh, is to embrace the spectacle of 40k. I think 40k is in a really good spot right now in a lot of ways, but I think it is kind of getting lost uh, in the competitive 
scene. I know it's been competitive for a long time. I'm not trying to crap on competitive play by any means. Please, if you enjoy competitive play, play the crap out of your competitive games. That's fine by me. Um, but when you think about kind of older editions of the game where you had things like, you know, you could buy upgrades for your veteran models and, you know, Terminator Honors was a, a thing that you could earn for characters and uh, mm-hmm. rules like flamers and bunkers hitting everything in the bunker and just it was a more flavorful and not necessarily as well balanced but definitely a more storytelling game right personally that's where i think 40k does its best and so i'm excited to kind of get to that yeah and i'll i'll say the the game playing it there was a very uh traditional feel to it so like you know, we I have not played 40k in a long time, but it really took me back five, six years ago where I would just grab units and just play them to, to play them. There was not a lot of list scripting. Um, so that was it was really refreshing to get back to that narrative style of play. Like these are the units that would be tasked to do this job, good, bad, and different. Um, I mean, still, don't get me wrong, there was still stratagem used and synergies played, but it wasn't as is in depth of what we've done. So I, I'm excited to see it go forward. Yeah. And I think one of the things that has me the most excited was kind of, we talked about, we all got together and had dinner one night and talked kind of about expectations for this. And what, one of the things that we kind of came up with was the whole idea of a unit pool where you draw up just a pool of units, like up to, I think we ultimately just thought it was, like 3,000 points or whatever. So you had 3,000 points that you just get to choose from, right? But you have to build those units out beforehand. So like you you want to build your your armies based off of what you have and not what you're trying to do for the mission. And I just think that that kind of does a good job of explaining or conveying the story of this deployed this deployed faction like they can't change their resources this is what they have so i just think that that's a kind of a cool thing that we kind of came up with um and it i had a lot of fun kind of drawing up the um drawing up the list of stuff that i could pull from so great um, i'm stuck with reavers for the rest of the campaign yeah you don't have to use them every game yeah and it's not like they're that expensive (laughs) they are over I, I need a vent about them for just a well, second. No. All right, all right. Get on your get on your vent box. It's just like I mean, I have twenty of them, right? So given the mission, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna bring five uh pistols with combat knife and five um bolters. <clears throat> and they're so cool looking and they kinda have some rules, but now they're eclipsed by the new the new Space Marines, the new uh, Phobos armor Space Marines. It's literally they do the same thing better and the same, almost the same cost. The Reavers are just really, they don't have a home. Like, you know, one, I misdeployed the one unit badly, so they never yeah, really did. got to do anything. Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't have anything to do with the fact that you put them on the backboard edge. But they're the same price, like, they're the same no, cost right. as yeah. the other ones. For infiltrate, they have they don't have as good a gun, and then like the attacks, like so you get three attacks with a combat knife, which is all good and great, but they only move six inches. Yeah, you have to pay ten point points, so they ignore terrain. So there are some cool things, but like you're better off having a better bolter and getting to to melee when you do because they'll have two attacks instead of three, and then really the ones with the carbines, 
like holy cow like the gun is worse than than the other gun mm-hmm. um yeah just really disappointed in that in that unit entry i don't know how they fit into full 40k games now down in kill team they they shine but i don't <laughs> think i need 20 of them terrifying in kill, team. kill team so just a little just... disappointment do you feel better i do i do good, good. <laughs> i'm gonna delete them from my 3000 point list and add something useful I will say I've had one really fun game with Reavers where you use the grapnel launchers to spring a deep strike assault because since they ignore vertical range, you could deep strike into like a building where they are you know, more than nine inches away from a unit, but the charge distance isn't vertical. So you charge in and you get in their face real fast, and that was pretty fun. Yeah, but wasn't that FAQ'd now? No, I think it was a different thing. We talked about that before. Well, fly. They don't have fly. Fly is not the keyword. Mm. Well, well, we is... have to figure that out before we play. I know, right? <laughs> Maybe there is a use to them. So, Danny is firmly in the Reavers are awesome camp. Jason is firmly in <laughs> say the that, Reavers but... suck camp. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, well, so, Danny, you can't be like ambivalent about the reavers <laughs> watch me oh right. that's why i just lumped you that's why i lumped you in danny breaking four. the mold every now and then danny four um but no i've i really appreciate the fact that um we got to play a game and jared i know that you pulled that book that campaign from the main rule book but there was a couple twists in there and i actually had never read read that mission before but there was a couple twists in there were those part of the mission itself or did you just kind of come up with those as kind of the gm uh are you talking about like the like where i made it minus one to hit the first round and yep and then i plopped some random objectives that never did anything yeah so the i think the minus one to hit i think it does have like dawn attack in that book it was the ambush I, i basically cribbed the ambush narrative battle plan okay. from the original okay. rule book but i kind of flubbed the de- i like messed with the deployment zones a little bit because jason and i played that one before and when you can get like right up on top of somebody it can just be gross like nobody wants gene stealers who are going to get the first turn to start eight in- 12 inches away from the opponent like that's just not fun yeah. um so i try to be really careful about how i laid out the terrain for the battle um and then I kind of mess with the deployment zones a little bit to kind of help crib like the first turn assault um, from the uh, the ambushers. Um, and then and then the objectives. Um, I mean, so that I pulled something um, from another rule book, but I'm not going to say what it is since you guys didn't get to see what happened. Um, trigger it, so yeah, we didn't, you didn't trigger the the uh, the effect. So maybe it'll prop up in another mission, or maybe you'll never know. So, but we should set the stage for the the mission itself, right? The first engagement, like Trace talked about, was he had a he had a force of chaos, Black Legion and cultists and stuff that had um, traveling down this road, and the Crimson Fists were called by the Ultramarines because the Ultramarines were tied up fighting um, Tyranids, you know, on another section of the planet. So they called in really the third company uh, uh, comes in. And they noticed this movement of the Black Legion down a road. 
going somewhere I don't know. So we set up an ambush, and the mission was for me to stop the Black Legion going down, you know, to wherever they're going, like mosey on down the trail. Um, so I set up set up an ambush with a lot of themey units, like a lot of a lot of incest incestors, incestor, in, incest, incest, intercessor, oh, oh, intercessors. Okay. okay, there you Ooh. go. <laughs> Ooh. Not being West Virginia 40k. <laughs> oh, no, we lost our listeners in West Virginia. Oh, um, no. Grim darkness of the Appalachian Mountains. So, I, you know, Reavers and stuff like that, and basically set up along along the terrain features um, and Trace marched on down. There was a, definitely some battles. Uh, did take yep. down the Demon Prince. Yep. Uh, you tied up, you know, my Hell Blasters and a lot of my shooting stuff at the end end of the road. Uh, but in the end, your cultists got off and some yep. warp towns got off. So, yep. So it was it was a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed it. Um, there for a minute though, I was like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> yeah, that, your 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 expression and your demeanor before turn one, before any dice were rolled, was uh, you you were not like, hopeful. <laughs> not going to go well. <laughs> Listen, the Gene Steeler Steelers already ripped up Eldar once in that mission. I don't think we're going to make the same mistake twice. Yeah. Yeah, that was it was pretty bad. I was just like, this is a lot of bolters. <laughs> this is a lot of bolters coming at me. Um, but, you know, through some clever use of stratagems, and thankfully I used Tide of Traders and got my cultists on the back edge and then ran them off once I got Jason good and distracted. So, but I had a lot of fun. Um, looking forward to any of to, uh, some, the more missions in the future. And, um, what do you guys think is going to happen in the next mission? Just broad, broad strokes. I feel like we're going to see a clash between the Ultramarines and the Tyranid. Oh, that never happens. Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. I mean, then, the Crimson Fist got a Crimson Fist got a report back that we suck. So I don't really want to talk to to my my warlord Danny over there. <laughs> maybe maybe the tier note will wipe them all out, and you won't have to report to anybody. Don't well, disappoint me, Jason. <laughs> well, we all know that nobody does it like tyrannic war veterans do. So, um, with that, we will close out this section and move on to the next one. And we're back. So a game that we have talked a bit about here and there, uh, but is near and dear to our nerdy hearts, is Blackstone Fortress. And it has gotten some new announcements this week of new units uh, and new expansions being added to the game. And uh, we are excited, and I'm going to say that pretty definitively without even asking anybody, because I decided that we're excited. And uh, that's that. But uh, oh, great no. segment, cool. Nice. <laughs> Moving on. No, uh, so it is a fantastic dungeon crawling game that we were heavily obsessed with in the early part of the year, uh, and have kind of got distracted from. But it's great to see it get some support, and um, we thought it might be really fun to kind of talk to everybody about what Blackstone Fortress is, how it plays, and why we love it. Uh, so Jason, why don't you give us a quick rundown of 
the mechanics of the game, and then after that, uh, we'll get Trace in there to kind of tell us some of what the fluff of the game is. Yeah, cool. So, you know, the game is, it's a cooperative game, which is odd for a GW product, right? So you're playing against the system. Not that you have to, you can appoint someone to run the baddies of the mission, Um, but it's a a dungeon crawler, uh, four heroes, or maybe heroes, uh, yeah. descend within this Blackstone fortress. Or five if they're really small. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and, you know, some of the mechanics that, that I really like about it is there's an initiative track for every turn. So, you know, as you lay out the dungeon, you shuffle these cards. So each uh, enemy group will be numbered within the mission. There will be a group of enemies, number one, two, three. Um, and then your heroes will have their own card and you take all these cards and you shuffle them up and you lay them out in this initiative track. And that is how the game determines who activates first. So that right there is, it's really, really key because you might be in a room with, with an electro priest or not electro priest. Um, what the, what are those really? Yeah. They're like electro priest, but not electro priests. Electro shock culture. Negavol cultures. There you go. The cultists. Like they're standing right next to you or Urgle standing right next to you. And you're like, I need to go first. And then you flop the cards over and you're going last. Um, And then there are mechanics where you can kind of jump along that initiative track, but they can spend, you know, they can use resources and your dice. Um, They can not work. They can not work. So it's uh, it's a cool twist to allow the game to run itself. Um, you know, each hero has different stats, obviously, with it being a role-playing game. But you roll dice. Typically, it's four dice and, you know, D6s. And depending on what you roll on those uh, allows you to do. So, like, if you roll a six, you can basically do whatever you want on your card. Like, you'll have special attacks and special movements. Um, and then you'll spend that six to do those things. And go down the line and spend all four of your dice to do your activations when your initiative track card comes up. So that's my favorite part. Uh, and then, you know, what the, and that's been done before in a couple of GW games, kind of that type of um, mechanic. But then what's cool with Blackstone Fortress is at the end of the mission, there is some RPG building elements where you get to select gear for your guy to kind of customize them for the group or for yourself. So. Yeah, definitely. There's a really, like, fantastic moment of tension when you lay out the uh, initiative deck. Because, there, like you said, there's times where you're sitting there and you're like, I am I'm dead on die. arrival. I'm <laughs> this card flips yeah. over and it is not me in any other situation. I am dead. And so it's it's great, especially if it's... Um, you know, so basically you rotate around who the leader is and that just determines who rolls certain dice and flips certain cards and everybody takes turns. And so, especially when you have somebody like Jason in charge who just sits there and talks mad junk before each card gets flipped over, (laughs) uh, it can definitely rankle the nerves. Uh, So, Trace, why don't you explain why we're even in... What is a Blackstone Fortress and why are we in it? So, for those who don't know what a Blackstone Fortress is, a Blackstone Fortress is... There are now seven that we know of um there used to be just six that were known um and they were ancient relics made thousands and thousands of years ago um and they're originally known by the eldari as the talismans of vol 
Um, <clears throat> but basically, they're these super powerful um, constructs that are made of a, a psychically reactive material called blackstone, hence the name. Um, but the reason why we are looking for these, and Abaddon has used these to as weapons in his crusades against the Imperium of Man. Um, and in his latest, when the Cicatrix Maledictum opened up, that's when this new seventh one emerged. Um, and the Imperium definitely recognizes, or just anybody really recognizes, that these are all incredibly powerful um, <clears throat> fortresses to, to hold in your, in your possession or to use to your advantage. And so the reason why this game even exists is that all these different operatives from different, um, different, um, what's the best word? Sects or, um, factions, factions, I guess, are, are, are trying to claim the treasures of the Blackstone Fortress, which is the whole reason why we're there, which is why in the game you have a, pair of ratlings and then you have a rogue trader and you have a uh, imperial navigator um who has been my baby the whole thing um and then you have an eldar ranger a uh, man of iron which is something that predates the horde like it's a ancient relic of mankind um basically banned technology now um and then you have a crew that's in there and then you also have um the papa priest and his happy burner lady that that come along um but that's the reason why they're all in there they're trying to find all these different artifacts and unlock the secrets of the blackstone fortress um which i just think is a really cool way to kind of throw all these different disparate forces into one team that they kind of realize that they have to kind of work together to get through these to get through these halls of this labyrinth of um this labyrinth of deadly blackstone um <laughs> but I, I just think that that's what's really neat about it for me is that's it's a unifying thing that you get to play what you want and you don't have to uh really have a whole lot of reason other than the fact that like if you don't team up with these people you're gonna die <laughs> um well you get to play what you want in this party unless you want to play eldar and then danny's character will kill you and just, yeah, <laughs> shoot you. Yeah. i will do that yes eldar, fyi yeah no that is one of the great kind of joys of of that game is uh is that you definitely get to kind of buy into the fantasies of these mm -hmm. uh, individual characters and tie them to your own experiences on the table. So, Jared, why don't you tell everyone a bit about the party that we played as a lot and kind of what the strengths and weaknesses of those characters are so people can kind of get a feel for what these different characters are like in the game. Yeah, so we had... Um, Jason was playing um, Thaddeus the Purifier? Big Daddy Taddy. Big, affectionately known as Big Daddy Taddy. Um, and then, um, who's a, a, an imperial priest, and his ward, essentially, is Pius Vorn, who Danny was playing, and she is uh, a zealot who wields a flamer, uh, rescued from her youth um, by... Quote, quote, rescued. Rescued. <laughs> inspired. Yeah, inspired <laughs> um, uh, by 
by Mr. Big Daddy Taddy um, and now serves him um, unwaveringly. Um, (laughs) And then we have the Imperial Navigator. Uh, Oh, gosh, it's been so long since we played. Um, uh, Espern Locarno. Yep. And then uh, who... Uh, yeah, so he's a navigator, so he can throw mind bullets and do psychic things. And then we have Dayak Grek, who is the Kroot, um that I was using. And so um, uh, we had a pretty good mix as far as durability and offense and yeah. support was concerned. Um, I think one of my favorite things was with the Kroot, I got a free move and could drop a mine um, at the beginning uh, before anything happened as soon as we open a new dungeon and so that could either let me get into a position to be able to shoot or to be able to just drop a mine in the path of something and so a mine you know if as soon as something walks over it it, it takes a lot of damage so in most cases it's going to wipe out whatever hits it um esper and locarno has this amazing ability um to move other models enemy models so mm-hmm. Um, if we can pull somebody out of line of sight if we don't want them to be able to attack this or pull somebody into line of sight if we do want them to be able to attack or we want to be able to attack them or you could pull somebody onto a mine for instance um, which was really cool. or into a laser beam into a laser beam um, which was really cool and then the combo of um, Thaddeus and Pius Vorn w- was pretty good so um, Thaddeus is more of a support character. He can hit really hard and can shoot a lot. Um, but his thing is he could heal, uh, and that came in handy a ton. Uh, there were a lot of cases where, um, you know, somebody would get some, uh, you know, a minor injury, which removes one of those dice that Jason was talking about earlier. Um, so instead of getting four activations, you would only have three, uh, which gets a little painful. Or you have two activations, which is just excruciating. Um, and then Piusborn was basically our beater for the for the dungeons. So uh, with the flamer, uh, you know she could hit every model in a hex, um, or and she could also drop two like flame tokens. So she basically gets to attack for free anybody that walks through the flame tokens or gets pushed into the flame tokens by a <laughs> resonant psyker multiple um, times. Multiple times, yes. So uh, you know, but between all of those, um, the crew uh, he was he was. You know, middling on defense, but, but probably above average on on offense, um, and so and so he was able to kind of go in in melee when he needed to, but for the most part, stay back and shoot. Um, but I think between all of those, we were able to work together. We had two fast people and two slow people, so we were able to get you know if we had to split up, we could move around mm-hmm. pretty well to get to different parts in the dungeon if there were like levers that need to be activated or consoles that needed to be touched or whatever. Um, I don't. And you also so, forgot one of the key abilities that Esprin has too, which is the ability to keep some of the destiny dice, which really saved our bacon a couple mm-hmm. times. Yeah. So oh. the destiny dice I did not cover in the kind of the mechanics, but um, the destiny dice you roll them. You, is it me? In addition to your um, four activation dice, you roll a pool of dice. But if there's any doubles, you have to eliminate them out. And one of Trace's characters' uh, abilities was to keep one of those die. So yep. it was really cool. Yeah, that always really helped. And so as once you kind of have your team assembled, every mission is kind of procedurally generated in a certain way. You mix a deck full of different uh, maps and situations and encounters. 
and you it'll tell you all right if you're trying to get to this you'll, you'll basically pick a dungeon you'll say all right we're trying to get through this ergol nest and so the ergol nest will be the last map you play and it'll tell you you need to draw four cards before you can enter the ergol nest and those four cards can be anything they can be uh, a mission that's a normal you know proceed from point a to point b get out of the the chamber collect x y and z and you're out they can be an ambush where your models are set up in the middle of the chamber and all of a sudden you're surrounded by bad guys. Or they can be kind of little challenges uh, like, hey, you guys reach a canyon and there's a little tiny bridge and you have to choose to cross it. So take an agility test. And then no, no, I don't. I happens. refuse. I yeah. refuse. <laughs> because or you Jason's... stack dice on one on top of each other in a yeah. time, timer amount, which was yeah. fun. And nobody bumps the table or anything. Yeah. Um, and so you'll have these little fun challenges, and once you proceed through, you'll go into the final chamber, in this case the Urgul Nest. You can play through that entire scenario, which will often have little special rules that you know, will make some villains more difficult to beat, and you'll have little tasks you have to perform, uh, you know, engaging different maglevs, or turning off killer lasers, or working your way through some kind of impassable wall. And uh, and then if you succeed, if you have one hero succeed, the entire mission is a success and you go to a place called Precipice, which is like a space station. And once you get to the space station, you can then spend rewards that you've earned through each mission on upgrades. And upgrades can really change your character a lot. Um, Yes. Trace. Yeah. (laughs) Trace, why don't you tell us about upgrades? Because they had a big impact on the Carno, I feel like. Um, So, upgrades are one thing, but one of the things that was amazing for Espern in particular was um, if you have this one piece of equipment, he just started the game. um, Every session, he would start inspired. So, like, he would have better stats than, you know, than he did on his other side of his card. So, Oddly, one of the mini games that we played initially, one of the, I think the first session we played actually, um, Jason and I basically had like a punch off with each other. <laughs> we hit each other. We basically like drew bids to see who would go higher. And I was like, I know this card's in this deck and I get to pick it if I win. So I'm going to punch you in the face and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when that happened, um, I went through, picked out the deck, picked out that thing. And for the rest of the, campaign i was able to be inspired but the upgrades definitely made a huge difference because um once you start to get some of that archaeotech as they call it the treasures the the treasures of the blackstone fortress um i ended up with like this ancient technology pistol that made me really good for one round of combat and you know within range one of each within one hex of me um And then it really just kind of transforms what you can do with that character in addition to what your base capabilities were. Um, Jared got the big prize of all of them. We're not going to tell it what it is because it's the the end envelope oh. for the Black Strip, Blackstone Fortress, but it was pretty sweet. <laughs> um, yep. uh, but yeah, the, the upgrades definitely make a dramatic impact on your character and what you can do. Definitely. And as Trace just kind of hinted at, the whole entire campaign strings together these mini dungeons to an epic face-off with a nasty, nasty Chaos Lord that will beat your face in real mean. Yes, he will. And if you succeed in that highly unlikely circumstance, 
a person of your party gets to open the Blackstone envelope, and that has a secret piece of Archaeotech upgrade plot point. You don't know. You'll find out when you open it. That kind of keeps you going. That's your carrot on the stick. Is that you know when you have to go through these dungeons, sometimes it feels like, oh man, we got to get through six of these tonight. It's like, but we get to open the envelope, and the envelope is a fun mechanic where you add a little bit of mystery to your game. Um, since then, they've added a couple expansions. Uh, we haven't played them yet. But it looks like it is a game with a healthy future. They've announced two expansions. There appears to be at least one more on the horizon. The miniatures are fantastic. The gameplay is fun. It's fast. It's cooperative. If you are looking for a night to just sit down with your buddies, pretend that you are agents of the dark, dark future of the 41st millennium, and you want to just roll dice and drink beer for 150 bucks. You're not going to have a bad time. You should definitely check it out. We endorse it wholeheartedly. And we'll be back with the next segment. And we're back. So we're going to do a quick crack glass section. Uh, the Warhammer World Grand Clash wrapped up today uh, at our recording. Uh, and it uh, one thing of note is that it was the first... GW sanctioned, GW hosted two-day Warhammer Underworlds events, uh, and I think that we've talked about this before. Um, but the big thing there is that it gets you down to a truly undefeated player. Um, we've talked before about how some of the events, you know, will will cut to top two, um, but there are you know six or eight or ten undefeated players that that get cut out that aren't getting able aren't able to get to the top table or, or even get the chance to get to the top table. So uh, for those of us that are on the competitive bent for Underworlds, that's kind of a big deal to see GW shifting to that. Uh, um, and then uh, the big winner, um, and, uh, currently as of before today, had not won a Grand Clash, so Molog actually took the day. And uh, Trace, you sent the deck out. Um, uh, you found it pretty interesting. So why don't you talk uh, really quick about you know what was in the deck and kind of your thoughts on it. Yeah, it was kind of an unconventional deck, but it has a bunch of different paths to win, I think. Um, it, you know, you have your natural, your natural beating element with Molog just in general. Um, so it, he doesn't need a whole lot of help to try and tool up his damage. As long as you can get him inspired, he does four damage. I mean, that's plenty to to deal with especially when on a seven moon fighter but this one was different because um since they since the release of the unbound power stuff um we've seen a pretty big shift in like the way that people are building decks because of all the new faction specific cards and um one of the things that kind of i took note of was the uh the additional uh, version of Longstrider, which is called Burst of Speed. Um, so when they <clears throat> they just recently restricted Longstrider, but then they added Burst of Speed, and I would assume that it's because they knew this card was coming out. Um, so now you have a restricted card, which if you don't know what what Longstrider does, it it's a score immediately card that um, 
you get when you when you make a second or subsequent move with a with the same fighter in a round. So now you have two versions of these, but this this deck had both of those. And then it had everybody's favorite card, which is uh, uh, calculated risk. So you just move through a uh, a lethal hex. Um, but then it also ran relics, which which is not a traditional play for a Molog deck. Tomes, not not, tomes. not relics. Tomes, excuse me, excuse me. Well, we've we've used the word relics so many times it's burning. <laughs> um, but the tomes, the cataphrane tomes. So this deck actually ran the acolyte of the cataphranes. Um, objective, and I think he ran all seven of the to- of the tomes. Yeah, they're all in there. Yeah, they're all in yeah, there. All seven. Yep. Um, so he didn't have a lot of room for upgrades, but he did take the new upgrade that I think is going to be in a lot of people's deck, which is the you equip another fighter. Um, Soulbound, I think is what it's called. Soulbound. It's spiritbound. Spiritbound. Yeah. Um, but you basically. You equip a, a fighter somewhere else on the board, and they always count as supporting the fighter that you nominate, um, which is huge for Molog because he, since he's not running with a lot of attack dice anyway, um, having that extra support really helps. Um, and then he ran a reroll card, the faction-specific reroll card, and then um, bag of tricks to help him like pull out his cards from his power deck. Um, but I really found it interesting because it provided multiple ways of scoring. Like, it didn't re- it didn't just rely on him killing stuff. Um, his big score was obviously Acolyte of the Cat of Rains for seven, no eight glory, in round three if he had all the tomes on. Um, but he also had Tome of Offerings in there, so if he got busy and wanted to just start smashing stuff, he had a good way to get glory there. Um, and then there was a lot of things that didn't require him to swing to get glory. So you had the movement stuff. Uh, he had the new card from Un- Power Unbound, which was a shortcut. Shortcut, yep. Which allows you to move a fighter if you move a fighter through like hidden paths or um, what's the other one that allows you to start on to go back to a starting hex. Uh, illusory, illusory fighter. Illusory fighter. Yeah, illusory fighter. He had in there. So there's a bunch of different ways to score that. I just thought it was a really interesting deck, and it wasn't conventional, which is why I think it probably did so well. Um, you'll probably see more of it, obviously, because <laughs> it just won't yeah. We'll we'll see more of it, and it it really was it's a it's a really good build. I'm I'm glad to see Illusionary Fighter come back into the fold because that's one of my favorite cards from season one. And after it got restricted, a lot of people just didn't look at it anymore because there's a lot of other good restricted cards. Um, but the fact that this can get going, and then he can cycle like you know put the the uh, bag of tricks on a uh, character that doesn't matter for him. And then make sure that he gets the cards out that he needs. And then in the last thing, if Molog's alive, he scores eight glory. Like right. a lot of people would look at this and be like, wow, 13 glory based off of objectives is really, it is truly, really low. But when you have Tome of Offering and then score eight at the end, if you have all your tomes out, is pretty impressive. Yeah, you can. And like I said, there's just multiple pathways, which is what I liked about it. So it was very. Very interesting build. Um, I, I, I'm not happy that Molog took one finally, but hey, what are you going to do? Well, at least it wasn't Thunder Buddies. <laughs> True. 
Yeah. So, um, so Jason, what was the the diversity pool, the warband? How did that look? Was it pretty spread out, or was it just Malog and and Stormsire? I mean, there are definitely, definitely, uh, uh, some tendencies with Malog and Thunder Buddies or Curse Breakers. Uh, you know, first off, I want to thank Wigglehammer. Uh, if you haven't been over to his blog, uh, great source of information, a great resource to find out other resources for content creators for Underworlds. Um, doing a great job, and he puts together these one this these wonderful spreadsheets on how many people played, what round they were defeated, all bunch of nerd data that I love. Um, but really I go there to find out how, what was the representation of factions. Cause I like to be a unique snowflake. And unfortunately my hopes and dreams are dashed, but um, yeah. So curse breakers was the number one represented faction, you know, 13, I think there was 83 or 84 players. So 13 were curse breakers, 11 Molog's, 13 uh, triples. So the authorities guardians. So those tied were the from tied tied with Stormsire. Yes, tied with Stormsire. Wow. Um, so those are the three top war represented warbands. I don't think there's any real like oh wow surprise there. Um, followed by Thunderix Profiteers, which had ten. Um, and then from there, you know, you have Godsworn. Godsworn at seven. And just a side note, three players playing Godsworn reached the top sixteen. That's why I'm sad but happy all at the same time. So <laughs> three players made the cut, um, but seven there, seven, seven thorns, seven gets and gets was surprising just because they didn't have anyone go undefeated through two rounds. Uh, and no, no one from gets made the top 16. Um, huh. yeah, it was, it was strange. Um, then fiends had four players. Eyes of the nine had two. So there's my unique snowflake, right? Um, uh, Skeletons, Sepulchral Guard had two. Chosen Axes, two. Um, Rats had two, Danny. There you go. They're still out there. Hey. <laughs> uh, Iron Boys had one. Firestriders had one. And the only two factions not represented were the original OG factions of Reavers and Steelhearts. Oh, wow. That's yeah. surprising. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, out of the top 16... Molog had five people made five top 16 um, players make it the cut. Then the next faction was Godsworn with three. Uh, Thunderous Profiteers had two. Yutharis Guardians had two. And Yutharis Guardians made it to the finals. Um, and then two for Curse Breakers, one for Fiends, the only season one faction to make it to the top 16. And then one Briar Queen. Okay. Wow. So the diversity is there, but I mean, it's kind of skewed. We knew Molog was going to be heavy. Like you have to deal with them. I was actually surprised. Like I thought curse breakers would be even more than 13, but you know, it's, I'm glad to see they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, for me, just from my perspective, I think I would have more fun playing as Molog than playing as the kind of semi-passive uh, Curse Breakers deck that is probably going to be the most effective. And, you know, I don't know, maybe other people are thinking the same thing. But Yeah, I mean, the Godsworn had definitely had a lot of content creators playing it. So, like, the three guys, like, they're, they were really good players. Um, so, I do think, and then... 
you know, there has been talk of Godsworn does a really good job of handling curse breakers because of their speed and their range. So, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was, it was a diverse event, not as diverse as what I would like to see with the season one war bands really falling behind season two. But in the end there, you know, there was a enough diversity where you went there, you would have probably seen multiple war bands through your play experience. So, yeah, that's good. That's cool. Um, any uh, any standout cards? Any any major takeaways? Um, you know, for me, there's two things. So there's a new card out of uh, Power Unbound is called Upper Hand, and I'll just read it real quick. It's a reaction card. Um, play this during a friendly fighter's attack action when the attack roll and defense roll are compared. If the rolls are tied, add one success to the attack roll. Um, you know that. That card to me meant that if no one succeeded, if I whiffed my attack roll and you whiffed your defense roll, you play that and it adds one, and which makes it a very, very powerful card. And they ruled it at the Grand Clash that that is the way it is played. So be on the lookout for Upper Hand coming to a deck near you. It's basically, um, you know, oh, I missed. Oh, no. Defenses normally miss. We roll less dice for defense. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it is a very, very good card to swing. And even if you do, like if you roll a crit and he rolls a crit or she rolls a crit in defense, you play this and now you you now, you now are the victor. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, that's a good intense. Card. That's a good so, card. Yeah, and I'm sure it'll be FAQ'd and updated with their next one, but... The designers were obviously on site for the Grand Clash at Warhammer World, and the TO ruled it that zero successes can be at it can add a success if it's tied at zero. Yeah, um, yeah that makes sense to me. The other ruling, which I'm not super happy with, but it kind of ties into that deck that won it, um, and it it fits the it fits the FAQs like it's it's all it's all legit, but it just adds one more thing to Molog's toolbox. Um, so Molog through multiple cards, you know, talking hidden paths and moving, like he, he can get two move tokens and two move tokens don't stop you to, uh, take an activation. Well, then if you have the tome where if you take a charge token and score a glory, well, guess what? Like Molog can do that. Like he can, he can have two, he can have two move tokens and And a charge charge token. token and still activate and take a charge because the FAQ for his inspired side says if he has a single charge, he can still activate. Oh, man. So he can score two glory in theory if he has, was a Tome of... Tome of Glories. Tome of Glories, yeah. So, and it was ruled that way, played that way. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's so dirty. I guess I need to practice that with y'all, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just when you think that FAQ kind of cut Molog off at the at the knee, Power and Bound comes out, and you know the community finds a way to to get it done. So yeah, all right. That's what I well, like about the game, though. Yeah, well, I uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm I'm thinking about my deck that has the plus one dice attack on the next attack activation and maybe dropping that for upper hand because I'm not telegraphing an attack mm-hmm. and it still works if I fail. So, yeah. And it's, it's hidden. It's 
the reaction is yeah, played reaction. during during yep. though. So Ooh. like you know how the FAQ definitely has yep. made afters where you can block them. It's a possibility, but play it during. Right. There's a lot more space during during. So yep, it's a really that's good true. card. Yep. Yeah, it's a less crowded window than the after part. Yep. And we've lost Danny. Uh, <laughs> melting in the corner. <laughs> so on that, we'll uh, we'll take a break, and uh, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap up. It'll be kind of an extended wrap up because we're gonna talk about kind of what we're all working on, uh, getting ready for Nova. So we'll be right back. And we're back. And uh, this will wrap us up. So, uh, as always, we want to say thank you for listening. Um, you know, we really appreciate you guys coming along this journey with us, um, kind of checking us out and, uh, and hearing what we're up to. Uh, if you like what we're doing, um, please leave us a review. If you don't like what we're doing, we've said this before, um, you know, leave us a review too. If there's something that you would like to hear from us or something you think we could do better, um, we, would, we would love to hear it. And uh, we, we would probably take that to heart. Um, so, uh, maybe. you know, maybe, maybe. I mean, Trace, I got a review. Fix Skype. Fix Skype. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, all right. I'll, uh, I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> um, so you can find us, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So Facebook, we're the Battle Mallet Podcast. So if you search Battle Mallet Podcast, um, Twitter, we're Battle Mallet One, and Instagram, we're Battle Mallet Pcast. Um, we have a, a Discord server that hopefully we'll start getting on soon. Uh, we are seven weeks away from Nova, so hopefully we'll all be on there, you know, either talking shop about games that we're going to play or trying to get our last, you know, the last minute hobby stuff done. Um, so you can find us on there. Um, if you enjoy what you're hearing and you want other people to be able to hear it other than via word of mouth, uh, leaving us reviews on Facebook and iTunes is kind of the best way to get that done. So, you know, give us those five-star reviews. Um, help us get our content out there. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. So, uh, but before we wrap up, given the fact that the end is near-ish, um, you know, we got seven weeks to get ready for Nova. So uh, why don't we take a little bit, a little bit of time to talk about, you know, what we're planning on for the next seven weeks. Uh, so I'll kick us off. I talked, you know, at the beginning of the episode, I've got 700-ish points of... Uh, Blades of Corn to paint. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and in the same vein, uh, Trace and I played one practice game, so it'd be nice to get at least, you know, like four or five more games in there where we can switch sides and maybe try to find some opponents that would be willing to play against, you know, a two-headed giant to steal a magic term where, you know, Trace and I are fielding our combined force against either a single opponent or another doubles opponent. So... Um, definitely want to get that in. Um, you know, I think I feel like there's a lot of tailoring that can be done to my Underworlds list for the Ultharis Guardians, since that's what I'm planning and I'm taking. So, trying to get as many games of that in as I can would be good. And then I think I got to figure out what I'm taking to the doubles 40k narrative. I know good it's going to be Grey Knights. But, yeah, and I have a lot of it painted. I think I would be happy taking only stuff that I have painted, but I do have a Caldor Drago sitting unpainted that mm. could be fun. So, yeah. 
I think seven weeks, there's enough time to do all that, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're only going to play three more times. That's basically what it comes down to. Yeah, probably. Yep. So, uh, Trace, what about you? Seven weeks, what you want? Uh, similar goals. I mean, obviously, we've got all these things to paint for the Age of Sigmar doubles. I'm almost done with my knights for the for the narrative doubles. Um, but yes, um, definitely need more practice games. Um, at this point, like, I, there's two or three different things I could take to Nova for the for the Underworld stuff. I haven't decided on that yet. I could bring Thunder Buddies. I had a lot of fun playing them. Um, but <clears throat> that's kind of up in the air right now. I'm going to kind of probably do what I did last year and just kind of make my mind up the week before. <laughs> it's just I've felt less stressful for me doing it that way, but we'll decide later. Um, and yeah, just getting, I'm sure we can find some opponents that'll play with us for the age of Sigmar doubles. Cause that's getting more popular around our area anyway. Yeah. So that should be a relatively easy thing to do. Um, but yeah, that's my goals. And then just to just try and not freak out about the painting part and just enjoy it while I'm doing it. That's my big thing. Like, don't feel stressed. Um, because if you just dedicate a little bit of time, it'll get done. Um, especially with seven weeks left to go. So, Yep. What about you, Danny? Uh, I need to paint the entirety of my 40K doubles list. I have to figure out what my doubles list is. That's step one. Then step two is to paint it. And then I would love to play some more 40k games and some more Middle Earth strategy battle games uh, so I can kind of get more familiar with the systems and knock some of the rust off. And then last night I bought a case, so that was another big thing I had to, to cross. I had the old school GW cases that kind of suck, and so I bought a nice Magnarack case from Battle Foam. So Ooh, yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to getting that in the mail. Transport my minis and magnetic safety. I'm interested to see what the Danny review on that is because I've been eyeballing one of those for a while. I'm really excited about it. I've been wanting to do the magnet storage for for quite a while, so it was nice to take the leap. The Fourth of July sale was awesome, so made it kind of one of those things where I couldn't afford not to buy it at this point. Nice, nice. Yeah, but other than that, just kind of keep plugging away. Knocked out a lot of painting this week, so I'm hoping to keep that trend going. How about you, Jay? I'm just sitting here thinking, life is good, guys. See, y'all hate on me all year long because I spend thousands of dollars to get my minis painted. Well, guess what? I don't have to pay paint anything for Nova. So we ready, boys. We ready to go play some games and roll some dice and drink some drinks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Nice. Yeah. <laughs> My seven weeks will be spent like getting as many games as I can possibly get in with Godsworn and Eyes of the Nine. And then I would really, really love if you guys make time in the seven weeks to play the next campaign because I would like one more game of 40K before I have to go and play four games back to back to back. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we can, uh, we can, we can oblige that. that. Yeah. yeah. Shouldn't be too hard. 
Cool. All right. So uh, painting and painting and painting and sitting around doing nothing. Yes. Nice. It's, uh, yeah. Sounds good. Cool. I think that'll uh, that, that'll wrap, wrap us up. So uh, for the Battle Mallet Podcast, we are three dads and a man who really, really wishes he was a man of Gondor. <laughs> oh. uh, I'm Jared. It's tattooed on my arm, man. <laughs> Trace. I'm Danny, and I am a man. Of I'm not a man of Gondor. In my heart of hearts. And I'm Jason Tabledoo Murray. Peace! Because Danny didn't say it. You, you stole it. This is the worst. <laughs> the worst end of a podcast ever. I'm leaving. Disconnect. <laughs>